Well, welcome. After tonight, we have one more study next week. So uh, tonight, we'll be looking at the sacraments and the mission of the church. So if you have the little booklet, bound booklet, it's pages 53 to 55 towards the end of the uh, statement. We're going to start not with the sacrament, but with the second part, the mission of the church. The purpose and the mission flow out of uh, numbers of things actually Glenn addressed last week as he spoke about the universal church and the local church. To, just to kind of recap what he said, um, and you can correct me at any time if I don't do it out of it. When I say any time, I mean there'll be a 30-second pause and, and then just shut up. Um, Uh, The universal church is all believers everywhere who are saved uh, through faith in Christ. Um, Old Testament saints uh, looked forward uh, to Christ as their final priest and king, the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, the whole uh, sacrificial system. Uh, pointed to Christ. He is the very substance of what they promised. The forgiveness of sins uh, that is seen in both the law and the prophets. Uh, So just as the Old Testament looked forward, uh, the New Testament saint looks back to what Christ has accomplished in his death and resurrection. Uh, The universal church is the whole of all believers in all places at all times, Genesis to Revelation, who have been saved through the blood of Christ. The local church is uh, each local, specific, physical manifestation of the body of Christ. Um, We are individually part of the universal church through faith in Christ. But our experience of the Christian life is supposed to be lived out here and now in a local church. We live out our faith. We experience the ordinary means of grace. We come under the protection of Christ's authority through the local church. The New Testament is written to what? Local churches and pastors of local churches. It's uh, it's contradictory to say, I belong to Christ and not be committed to some local church somewhere. In fact, you can't live out the truths of the New Testament apart from that. You can't make sense of them unless you're connected to a group of Christians living together under the authority of the church. And so with those two truths in mind, we're going to look at the purpose and the mission of the church on pages 54 to 55. The first line, as the body of Christ, the church exists to worship, to edify and mature his people, and to bear witness to Christ and his kingdom in all the world. Our statement of faith 
makes this three-prong approach to what the church is supposed to do and be. What are those three things? We are to worship, we are to mature believers, and we are to evangelize. Think of the first one, we worship God. We are to magnify who God is, not just individually in our life, but in our life together. Who he is and what he has done for us. We lift our voice and we live our lives both separately and together in light of the reality that God exists and that we have been reconciled through the blood of Christ. God is wholly righteous and wholly merciful. He is a good God. He is the sovereign one who orchestrates every detail of your life. And he promises to work all of those details, both the good things and the bad things. He works together for your ultimate good. He is always with you, he is always for you, and he is always going to bring his goodness to bear on his life. That changes how we experience life. And so we can live a life of worship in both the good and the bad times. And, and it makes us, what, long for his return, doesn't it? That's really what life should do for us. Anything that's good, any blessing that he brings in your life is but the merest foretaste of all the good things that he has in store for us that are far beyond all that we can imagine, ask, or think. And even the bad times... What do they do? They make us worship him. They make us lean in, don't they? We have this tendency, even when we love God, to live independent of him. And in the tough times, our hearts cry out, where are you, God? But even in that, who are we addressing? Our God. And so... Even the bad things make us dependent on God, and it really makes our hearts cry out, come Lord Jesus. We just want things to be perfected, for all things to be made right, for the struggle and the difficulties to finally be over. All of that are not just individual truths, but corporate realities. And so we worship Together, it's wonderful to worship by yourself, but worshiping together, we do what? We remind each other. As, as you sing, you, it's wonderful to be in a church where you are known and people know you. Because you can look across the room and you can have stories and ideas of what's going on in people's lives. And each person is a testimony of the power of God. And as we see one another go through the ups and downs of life, that's an encouragement to us. 
I remember uh, years ago, uh, uh, I think I've shared this story uh, not too long ago. It was 1994, and I was visiting a man in the hospital. And growing up, he always seemed like a guy who was sort of up and down in his faith. He'd be here, and then he wouldn't be here. Um, and he was dying of cancer. And I was in his room, and there were all kinds of wires and stuff, and I was a little overwhelmed by it. And I was only there a very short time, uh, just enough time to try to encourage him, uh, speak some truth, and, and pray with him. And in that short time, he must have said six or seven times how good God was. And as a young man, I was just moved by that. I went to minister to him, and just in his suffering and his pain, not trying to impress, just speaking his heart. And maybe his life had been up and down, but God was faithful to him and through him. And when he came to the final hours of his life, and he died just a a few days later, uh, the faith that God had given him shined through. And that's been a mark in my life, one of the great honors um, for us as Christians is to walk with people through difficulty. And don't even walk through with people through death. Uh, because their faith, God shining his faith through them, is something that the world can't fake. And so we worship together. The church worships God. The, the, the local church matures believers. We've looked at Ephesians 4 a couple of times where the risen Christ gives gifts to his church, including spiritual leaders who equip the saints for the work of ministry so that together we grow into the fullness of Christ. When each of us is doing a part, when each of us is involved, when each of us is using our gift for the betterment of one another, together we are being built up. As the church matures believers, we go out into a fallen world to be what? Salt and light, don't we? Uh, We get built up, not just to stay here, but to be in the world, but not of the world. There's a lot of good things that can be done in this world. There's a lot of suffering that needs to be addressed. A lot of wrongs that need to be Uh, made right. And we can be a part of that for the glory of God as worship. Now, it's not necessarily for the organized church to do all those things. We can't do everything. It's impossible. But the church equips the saints to what? Go out and do the things that God puts on your heart to do. To be uh, a representative of Christ in your little corner of the world, no matter how small or how big. The church matures, grows, equips the saints to serve one another in the church and to be that light in the world. And as we do that, As we go into the world, 
living godly lives, trusting our Savior and being willing to speak and to give an answer for the hope that's within us. We make Christ known to a lost world and God saves some. Line two, governed uh, by Scripture, the church gathers, he's going to be explaining more of what he said in the first sentence, the church gathers for the teaching of the word, prayer, the sacraments, congregational singing, fellowship, and mutual edification through the exercise of spiritual gifts. When it comes to worship, too many Christians think that it doesn't matter what we do. There's something about, and maybe uh, this is just part of the 20th, 21st century, the idea of trying to be new, trying to be different, trying to be perhaps more creative than we should in our worship. Not that creativity is wrong. But God, we said, is sovereign, right? He controls every detail of our life, but being sovereign means he is Lord. Which means he has opinions and desires for how he wants to be worshipped. Just ask Nadab and Abihu, who gave strange fire. And the fire of God came out of the temple and burned them up. Or Uzzah, who touched the Ark of the Covenant, and he dropped dead. God cares about how we worship him and how we deal with the things that he has given us. And in the Old Testament and the New Testament, God cares about how we worship him. And so our worship should be, as the very first statement says, governed by Scripture. If Scripture is not leading us in in how we worship, then it's just our opinion and our ideas. I'm sure Nadab and Abihu weren't thinking they were doing something wrong, but God told them how to worship him. And so we do those things that God prescribes in his word. Preaching, prayer, and sacraments are all called the ordinary means of grace. And when I say ordinary means of grace, I mean those things that are common to all believers everywhere. There may be gifts and experiences that some people have or some churches have. But what's common to us all, the word preached, our prayers, and the sacraments. And as we broaden that, it includes congregational singing, the fellowship of the saints, and the exercise of spiritual gifts. Now, that doesn't mean, even though uh, those are all sort of within the category of ordinary means of grace, that doesn't mean our experience is going to be the same in every church, is it? Some churches have a greater preaching and teaching gifts in their midst. Other churches may have 
other spiritual gifts that we don't have, or we may have some gifts that they don't have. But God gifts his church and his leaders the way that he chooses. So that, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 11, the Spirit distributes the gifts to each one as, not as we want, but as he determines. And so we, we gather as a church and we do certain activities that are given to us by God in his word for our benefit. Line three and four. As the Father sent Jesus into the world, so Jesus has sent his people into the world in the power of the Spirit. The church's mission is to make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Christ has accomplished his salvation. He is now enthroned in glory, ruling his kingdom in the hearts of his people. And that kingdom rule is made manifest in our shared life together under the authority of Christ in the local church. Think about Jesus right before he ascends in Matthew 28. He gathers his disciples and he gives what's called the great Commission, and our statement of faith almost quotes it exactly. And in Matthew 28, uh, verses 18 to 20, it says, Then Jesus came to them, to his disciples, and said, All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Christ, by virtue of his death and resurrection, in his humanity, has been given all authority. He already had all authority as God, but in his humanity, he's been given authority. And then he says, therefore, because I have all authority, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. There's uh, uh, four verbs in that sentence. Go, make, baptize, teach. There's only one main verb, and that's make, make, make disciples, the verb and the object. The church, Christ has given authority to the church to make disciples. All the other verbs are actually participles. They're helping verbs to tell us when and how that's to be done. When is it to be done? In our going, wherever we go, we are to make disciples. And how is that to be done? By baptizing and teaching them to obey, which are functions of the local church. The local church in its authority is given the responsibility to make disciples, to baptize them, to teach them, so that they go and what? Make other disciples. That's 
some of the logic in our talking about church planting. You can just see the rhythm. In our going, wherever God takes you, you're to be part of a church that is making disciples, baptizing and teaching. And then in your going, what happens? Others are brought to Christ who are then baptized and taught. And what happens? Another church is planted in another place. If you think, if you think about in Genesis uh, 1 to 3, in the story of creation, Adam and Eve are in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is the paradise of God, the temple of God on earth. It's where God and man commune together. What's outside the garden? Wilderness. Why do we know that? It says what? Be fruitful and multiply. Take dominion over the earth. Subdue the wilderness. And so that's what God intended for God's rule through humanity to start in one central place and to cover the whole earth. That's not what's going to happen now. Uh, What happens now is every church is an embassy. Instead of the kingdom being in one place, it's these little outposts in different places. In Egg Harbor Township and in Galloway, and an upper township, and amazing. It's churches representing Christ in their community, with their people, and it's God uh, uh, spreading his kingdom over the earth through these outposts. And we want to see them every place, in every community, reaching every kind of people. Now, even as we do that, the kingdom's not going to come in fullness until when? Until Christ returns. But he calls us to be part of what he's doing in the here and now. To be uh, making saints, making disciples, planting churches, and and, uh, 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 multiplying uh, embassies for his glory. And so we are, are going into the world... We are making disciples of the nations, teaching them to observe all that Christ has commanded. Line 5, we do this by proclaiming the gospel, planting churches, and adoring the proclamation of the gospel through our love and good works. It's almost a culmination of everything I've just said the last 20 minutes. How does God uh, uh, reach the lost through individuals, and through churches. That churches are proclaiming, that we're planting churches, that we're sending people out into the world who proclaim the gospel through what? Love and good works. We make the gospel attractive. We make the gospel believable. When we say, Jesus changed my life, and then we act like the world. We're not giving anybody anything to believe, are we? I don't need to get up Sunday morning to go to church to be like you. I can do that from my bed. We adorn this gospel proclamation. We, we speak 
the gospel, but we adorn it with love and good works. As we are matured in our life in the church, we are what? Conformed to the image of Christ himself. We become like him. As we speak the gospel, we give demonstration of the power of the gospel by how we live. And that's not necessarily always doing what's right. Because sometimes we don't, right? It's being willing to humble yourself and admit it when you're wrong. And to ask someone to forgive you. That's not a pleasant thing. We're much better at figuring out ways to justify how what we did was right. When in those moments, as God reveals our sin to us, we confess it not only to him, but we confess it to those that we wronged. And as we do that, we're not acting like the world, are we? And we're saying, this gospel is real. And we humble ourselves by the power of the gospel. And so we speak the gospel, we live it out. We become physical representations of Jesus Christ himself. And we represent Christ in our vocation, doing whatever our job may be. We, we represent Christ as we love our neighbors. Seeking to point them to Christ. We represent Christ in how we use our resources, our home our money, our free time. Think of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, 17 to 21. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and has given us the ministry... Of reconciliation. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God for our sake. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. That's a, that's a picture of the church. That's a picture of every individual Christian. We are ambassadors. We don't have our own agenda. We have Christ's agenda. We are ambassadors. The church is an embassy. The church, through its proclamation and its disciple-making, equips us to go, represent Christ, proclaim the gospel, and make disciples. And then, as I said, this leads to what? More church plants who produce and make disciples, who proclaim and reproduce themselves, and it keeps going. And through us, 
together. And Christ working in us, Christ makes his kingdom to grow. In uh, Acts 1, uh, Jesus has risen from the grave, and he's not quite ascended. He's for 40 days with his apostles, teaching them about the kingdom. And they say, now, is now the time that the kingdom's going to come? And he says, it's not time, it's not up to you to know those times. But you will be my witnesses. In Jerusalem, Judea, even to the ends of the earth. He doesn't really answer his question, their question, but he does. Is the kingdom now? Not in the way that they think. But the kingdom is now. And the kingdom is advancing. But it's not going to advance in some political, geopolitical way that we think or they wanted. At least not yet. It's going to advance as, the, as, as God's people and God's church are about God's business. And then the kingdom comes to bear and lives are changed. Line six and seven. There will always be a gathering of believers on earth because the Lord promises to build, guide, and preserve his church to the end of the age. When Christ returns, he will gather and perfect his church from every tribe, tongue, and nation as a people for his own possession, and he will dwell with them forever. This process of God's people gathering in God's church and then going out to proclaim God's kingdom will continue Generation after generation until Christ comes again. And that should be an encouragement for us, particularly in this day and age. When the world seems to have turned against us. Uh, For a long time, Christianity was sort of in, at least in theory. There was at least a nod to Christian morality, even if it wasn't real. But now, uh, we're considered part of the problem. And it seems like the church is fading. The church will not fade. Christ will preserve. It may fade here. But the church has always moved from place to place. There's always been a place where the gospel is in ascendancy and the church is growing. And in the West... And in the northern part of of, uh, the world, it's not. It's really in the southern hemisphere that the church is growing. In places like South America and Africa. Doesn't mean it's over for us. But that should should move us to ask God to send revival. Because that's the only thing that's going to make a difference. It's not who we get in office or who we get on the Supreme Court. A long time ago, I turned off the news because it just gets me riled up. I'm a, I am a news political junkie. I, it just, I, I have to remind myself 
it's all passing. And we don't even know who's telling us the truth. I don't know. We're all getting played, no matter how you vote. But when Christ returns, he will perfect his church. Uh, And and next week, uh, Pastor Kyle will be dealing with that last section on eschatology on the last things. So now, uh, we'll go to the first part of this section, the sacraments, on page 53 and 54. Any questions or comments? Uh, Glenn, did I do okay? Okay, thanks. I, I appreciate it, brother. Uh, any other constructive uh, comments or questions? <laughs> thanks, Jen. Okay. Uh, oh, I didn't bring it. Uh, there's a book, a little tiny book, not real tiny, it's uh, 150 pages, 200 pages, something like that. Uh, Truth We Can Touch on the Sacraments. I was ex- so excited when it came out. I'm reading it with a group of guys, and I'm also reading it with the, the staff at lunch on Fridays. Uh, which tells you if Chris can understand it, anybody can understand it. Um, and it's, it's just a, a wonderful book. Uh, I think the, the, the sacraments are a neglected area of, of church life in certain ways. You know, we do it, but we don't think about it. It seems a little mystical. seems a little, I, I, what, is this, what are we supposed to, I, it's an important part of the Christian life. In the book, uh, Truths We Can Touch by Tim Chester, he starts off and he says, Imagine your church stops celebrating communion. Nothing is announced. It just stops happening. Everything else goes on as, as it always has. You just don't have communion. How long before people would even notice? And what would they say? There'd be some protests. But think about that same scenario if you decided to stop preaching. Or you decided to stop singing. We're going to do everything else. We're just not going to sing anymore. All of a sudden, there'd be a lot of talk real fast about those things. Would our life, if we stopped the sacraments, would our life together as a church be diminished? How would we react? How do we think about baptism and the Lord's Supper? What is, it, what is its significance? And what is its importance to our life together? Um, it's not uncommon for people to come to faith, fully participate in church life, and yet never be baptized. Baptism, as our, uh, as our statement will say, is not required to be saved. The thief on the cross wasn't baptized. But it is a commandment, and it's for our good, and it's important. 
is baptism just water? Is the Lord's Supper just bread or wine or juice? Or is there something more significant happening? Line two, question is how many sacraments are there? Um, Protestants, the, the, uh, line two, the Lord Jesus instituted two sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper, for faithful observance by the church until he returns. Uh, there is a part of the church that uh, believes that there are seven sacraments, but Protestant churches do not believe that. We believe there's only two. Um, those two sacraments, as it says, are baptism and the Lord's Supper, were instituted by Christ himself. In baptism, we looked at Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Make disciples. How? By baptizing and teaching. And then the Lord's Supper was instituted by Christ at the Last Supper. Uh, the night before he died, he instituted the new covenant in his body and his blood. And we're to do that until he returns. The sacraments, the substances, have no intrinsic value of themselves. If you're at home and you sprinkle each other with water, or you just get a loaf of bread, and there, there is no grace in that other than the common grace of God's provision. But the sacraments in the context of the gathering of God's people has power. It's all about uh, uh, the redemptive context we find them in. In uh, uh, 1 Corinthians, do you remember where Paul talks about uh, meat sacrificed to idols? And there's a question, can we eat that meat? And he says, uh, basically he says, if you're going to the market and you buy meat, you don't have to ask any questions. It's just meat. There's nothing, there's nothing special about that. It hasn't been changed into something else, no matter what it was the night before. Because in that time, uh, uh, sacrifices to the, to the false gods in their temples would be sold as just butcher meat the next day in the market. He says, eat it, because you know there are no other gods. It doesn't make a difference. Unless you find out it was sacrificed to an idol. Then don't eat it. Not for your sake, because you know it's nothing, but for the sake of weaker believers or the unbeliever, that they may think you're participating. The point was, you're not allowed to go to the temple, to the false festival, the false god. That would be participating with that god. But to eat the meat bought in the market, that doesn't matter. A chapter later, though, he kind of, it almost seems like Paul is changing his mind and he talks about not eating and drinking. Uh, and, and you're left going, uh, is Paul confused? Will he make up his mind? What am I supposed to do with it? It was all about context. It's not for a believer to participate in the eating of meat 
that's being sacrificed to a foreign god. If you do that, then you're partnering with that god. You're condoning that behavior, that false worship. But the meatball in the market is fine. Why? It's, it's about context. When that meat is in that temple, it's a false sacrifice. When that meat's in the market, it's just meat. It's the same thing with the Lord's Supper. There's nothing special about grape juice and bread or wine and, and bread. It's, that's all it is. And that's what it remains. It doesn't change into something else. It remains bread and juice. The water of baptism is just water. Um, you know, some people want to be baptized in the Jordan. And, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, we, we are spatial kind of creatures. But the water there is not the water that Jesus was baptized in. It's just water flowing through. But I understand the desire. It's a, it's a place. It's being where he was at. It, it, it's, it's, it's just water. But in the context of the gathering, they take on meaning. And they're, they're, they're given meaning by our shared life together, our shared beliefs, and by our risen Lord. What is a sacrament? Line one. The sacraments are precious means of grace that signify the benefits of the gospel, confirm its promises to the believer, and visibly distinguish the church from the world. A sacrament makes the gospel visible. What we proclaim by words, we show in the sacraments. They are a sign and a seal instituted by God to help us understand more clearly the promise of the gospel. Our statement of faith says they are a means of grace. How? They signify the benefits of the gospel. They point to the promise of the gospel. And what is the promise of the gospel but the forgiveness of sins and eternal life merited for us by Christ's death and resurrection? They are not magical, but God gave them to confirm his promises to us, and thereby strengthen our faith. As I said, the, the water of baptism, the bread and the juice, are just that. Water, bread, and juice. They don't become something else. The elements remain unchanged. They're still bread and juice, but Christ, by his Spirit... In the midst of his people, gathering together in his name, he is present among us. And he is present in that sacrament, spiritually. Not physically, spiritually. What makes the sacrifice significant is the object to which they are tied. They are connected to Christ and his atonement for sin. They are a sign of Christ's death in his body and blood. As, 
that which washes the guilt of our sin away. Too often, I think, we focus on our response to Christ in faith during the sacraments rather than on Christ, who is the object to which they signify. Does that make sense? When you're taking the Lord's Supper, you're, you're, you know, we're supposed to examine our heart and be sober in how we take it, and we're trying to, this is, you're trying to make sure you're being serious and, and faith-focused in this. And I'm not suggesting that we have a light attitude about it. The significance isn't how strong is our faith or how well do we reflect on that faith. It is an opportunity to reflect on our faith. What makes it uh, uh, powerful is not our faith, but the object. Christ himself. Our primary focus, again, we can think about our faith and our response and examine our hearts, and we should do all that. In no way do I want to diminish that or say don't do that. But our primary focus should not be on our faith, but on Christ. The sacraments are a means of grace, meaning, meaning and given to strengthen our faith as we partake of them in faith. The sacraments are often called signs and seals of our faith. Um, As we consider that, I want to just have us back up for a moment and and give a little context uh, to to the sacraments and how they are used in the context of the whole Bible And so I want you to be considering the idea of a covenant. God deals with humanity in the context of covenants. Broadly speaking, there are multiple covenants in the Bible, but broadly speaking, there are just two. There's the covenant of creation and a covenant of grace. A covenant is a formalizing the reciprocal nature of the relationship that God created between himself and us and humanity. It entails God's promises and our obligations. The covenant of creation, God uh, had placed humanity in the garden where they communed with God and each other. They had freedom in the garden, but they had one prohibition. Don't eat the tree of knowledge of good and evil, lest you die. Life and death in the garden was based upon their obedience. So the covenant of creation is a covenant of works. Does that make sense? Obey me. And you will live. Disobey me, and you will die. In that covenant, we would get what we earn. Uh, God said, Obey me and live, represented by the tree of life. 
Throughout Scripture, the tree of life represents the eternal life that God gives. And, or we disobey and die, which was signified by being exiled from the garden paradise, away from the presence of God. The covenant of works was made with Adam and his posterity, meaning us. We all sinned in Adam. We all became sinners in Adam. And we all came under the judgment for sin in the covenant of creation. Ephesians 2, uh, verse 3, we were children of wrath. That's how we're born. Under judgment and under condemnation. But even as God was pronouncing judgment for sin, he was providing the covenant of grace that there might be hope that we could be saved. In Genesis 3.15, God is cursing the snake who deceived Eve to sin when he says, I will put enmity between you, the snake, who was Satan and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. You shall bruise his heel, and he will bruise your head. Right there is what's called the proto-gospel. The proto, proto, P-R-O-T-O. Proto-evangelum, proto-gospel. It's the first inkling of the gospel, because it's a picture of the gospel. Uh, The snake will bruise the heel. Satan will attack and hurt the seed of the woman. It will bite the, the heel of his foot. But as it bites the heel of the foot, the foot comes down. And in, in Genesis, it, says it bruises. In the New Testament, it talks about crushing the head of the serpent, the head of the dragon, who is Satan. In the, by the very means that Satan seeks to attack the, the, the offspring of the woman, the Christ, in that very process, the, the, the offspring of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. It would destroy all evil at its very source. That is God's promise. And the rest of the Bible is God just working that out. The the promise is that a descendant of the woman, the son of Adam, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the son of God, Jesus would come and destroy all evil. The covenant of creation promised death to sinners. Jesus comes as the second Adam. And he fulfills all righteousness. He he obeys God completely. What the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam achieves. And then after he achieves all obedience, he willingly dies on a cross, receiving the wrath of God that our sin deserved. The covenant of grace, that life and death of Jesus is ours, how? By earning it? By faith. The wages of sin, what you earn, is death. But the free gift of God 
is eternal life. But what you need to see and what you need to understand is God doesn't just wink and get rid of covenants. He fulfills them. The the covenant of grace is a fulfillment of the covenant of creation. Do you see that? Obey me and live, disobey me and die. Jesus obeyed and he merited life. And then he who knew no sin became sin and so received the judgment we deserved. And so both aspects of the covenant of creation are fulfilled in Christ. And when we place our faith in Christ, his righteousness is imputed to us and his death for sin is our death for sin. Jesus fulfills the covenant of creation for us and gives us the fulfillment in the covenant of grace, which we receive simply by faith in him as a gift. I died with Christ. And it's now Christ living in me by the power of the Spirit who raised him from the dead, who now works in me. God is always dealing with his people in the context of covenant. Even when it's not on the page, it's there. Michael Horton in his book, Introducing Covenant Theology, calls it the architectural substructure of Scripture. Covenant's always there. We're always in covenant with God and relating to God as even covenant uh, obeyers or covenant rebels. And so with that understanding, God has provided throughout Scripture covenant signs and covenant meals for his people. Covenant signs are tangible tokens tied to his promises. Covenant meals are to be understood as the reality of God's blessing to us, our communion with him and the abundance he provides. In the Garden of Eden, the sign of the covenant was Sabbath. God promised Sabbath rest. In uh, Hebrews For God ties uh, Sabbath rest to creation and to heaven. And he says there still is a Sabbath rest yet to come for us. There is an eternal rest that we have begun to experience, but the fullness of it is not ours yet. And so the covenant in in the garden was Sabbath. The the, the meal in the garden was what? The tree of life. But now the tree of life is given to us through Christ. Revelation 2, 7. To him who overcomes, I give the right to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. And then Revelation 22, it's not just one tree, but 12 trees bearing different fruit each month with the river of life flowing through it. It's better than Eden. In the garden, there was Sabbath and there was the tree of life. In the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, the sign to Abraham and Israel was what? I've got five minutes to do the rest, so uh, answer quick. What was the sign uh, uh, of the covenant in the Old Testament? Circumcision. 
a cutting off of the foreskin. Uh, in part signifying our being cut off from sin and, and the world. In Romans 4, 3, it says, Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. He was justified by faith, just as you and I are. And then verse 11 of Romans 4, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of righteousness. Circumcision was this perpetual reminder of God's promise, confirming the truth that he had given, meant to strengthen the faith of his people. As a seal, uh, what that meant was it, it was an Old Testament or an ancient Near East uh, statement of ownership. Circumcision marked Israel off as God's special possession. The old covenant meal, if the old covenant sign was circumcision, what was the meal? Passover. What did Passover represent? God's deliverance of Israel from slavery and bondage in Israel or in Egypt. Both the old covenant sign and the old covenant meal, the Passover, have their fullest understanding in whom? Christ. They find their meaning and the substance of what they are a sign and seal that pointed to the gospel and to Jesus Christ. And so with that understanding, we look now to the new covenant. The sign of the covenant now is not circumcision, but baptism. And the covenant meal is not the Passover, but the Lord's Supper. And both of them find their meaning and their significance in whom? The same object, in Christ. Both Old Testament and New Testament, the sign and the meal mean the same thing. They both point to Christ and the salvation he brings. Uh, line three of our, uh, covenant, uh, of our statement of faith. Baptism is an initiatory unrepeated sacrament for those who come to faith in Christ that pictures the remission of sin and union with Christ in his death and resurrection. We have been baptized into Christ. Romans 6, 3 to 4. Do you not know that all who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might live in newness of life. That's the picture. The death and resurrection of Christ. We go into the water and we come out signifying the new life that we have been washed by the blood. And then it goes on, Romans 6, 11 to 12. The Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead now lives in you. So that just as God raised him from the dead... He will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. Baptism is this initiation into the body of Christ. It represents our entry into life of the church. And so it should be administered fairly early in our Christian walk. And so to put it off, one is sin, it's disobedience. 
And two, you're, you're, you're keeping from yourself a sacrament that God intended for you that's meant to strengthen your faith. Line five, although commanded by Christ and a true means of grace, this grace is not so inseparable tied to baptism that one can be saved without it or that everyone who is baptized is thereby saved. It is a public statement of faith. And it is a means of grace. And it gives strength and builds up the believer. But only the believer. Those outside of Christ who are baptized, it, they're, they're really calling down judgment on themselves. Uh, the Lord's Supper, we won't read the last uh, couple of phrases. The Lord's Supper, where baptism is a one-time initiation into the, the life of the church, the Lord's Supper is what? A continual meal. Something that we do with some regularity. The Bible doesn't say how often, but it says as often as you do it, you declare uh, the death of Christ. It's a proclamation of Jesus' death on the cross. It is a remembrance for us that he died for us. And it's an opportunity to make a covenant renewal. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, what do we do? We fence the table. Meaning, we, we do what uh, the Apostle Paul tells us to do. Examine your heart. If there is unrepentant sin in you, get right with God. We all have sin. That's not the issue. The issue is sin that you're not willing to let go of. That you're willingly hanging on to. I'll give God everything else, but I'm keeping this one for myself. Uh, the Bible says that uh, uh, when we take the Lord's Supper that way, that sometimes judgment comes. Some are sick, and it says some, are, some have fallen asleep. Some have died. That's not, that's not a, an eternal judgment. That's a temporal judgment. doesn't mean that their salvation is gone, but it still is a judgment. So God warns against it. And so it functions as an opportunity to, to examine our heart and, and recommit ourselves every time we take it to be faithful to Christ and to remember his death for us to remember that it is a sign that points to his death and it is a seal. It marks us off as God's people. And so as God's people, we are to live differently. And so we take it together in the life of the church because as we take it together, we are making a proclamation of our personal faith in Christ, but we do it together in the church because as we are united to Christ, we are united forever with one another. And because we're united with one another, we should uh, love one another. Amen?